Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Today in the pod, we have Obama Polster, an author of the new book, A Black Man in the White House, Cornell Belcher, and the executive director of Indivisible, Ezra Levin. First, subscribe to all of our pods, Pod Save the World, Tommy's talking to Mark Warner this week, and Colin Call about Syria, Love It or Leave It. The juggernaut continues, and uh, with friends like these tomorrow, uh, Anna on Saturday did a live show in Pasadena with um, evangelical pastor Jeff Chu, and uh, it was a great show. And also, uh, she talks to Rick Wilson again this week, so check that out. That'll drop tomorrow, uh, Friday. Okay, Dan. So much happening in the Crooked BD Empire. There's tons happening. It's, uh, yeah, a lot of podcasts to listen to. Um, so we should probably just start by playing the game of cucks. Uh, <laughs> who's up and who's down? What we, the thing we always love about Washington? Let's go through that. We're gonna let's run. We're gonna run through this uh, rather quickly, and we'll just do it um, based on who's had a great week uh, and who hasn't had a great week. We'll start with who hasn't had a really great week. Um, and I think uh, top of that list is our friend Sean Spicer. Oh, Sean. <laughs> oh, Sean. Oof. So, Sean is at his briefing on Monday. Everyone's heard this by now, I'm sure. But um, uh, he, he he delved into some off-the-cuff Hitler comparisons, which is always... <laughs> look, at rule number one, if you're going to be a spokesperson, don't, don't do Hitler comparisons, you know? I just... <laughs> it's very simple. Uh, I don't think it's difficult to abide by. Sean did. Uh, he was trying to talk about uh, Assad in Syria, although for some odd reason he calls him Ashad. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> um, and he said at the White House briefing, not even Hitler used chemical weapons. So, you know, when a reporter asked him to clarify because, you know, gas chambers and all, uh, he said Hitler, quote, was not using the gas on his own people the way that Ashad was doing. Uh, so apparently the Jewish people of Germany were not Hitler's people. And then he continues to stumble and, and this was my, this, this was when I started just screaming at the, at the TV, like, please stop, Sean, stop. He, uh, he said, oh, of course I realized that, you know, Hitler brought people to the, you know, the, the Holocaust centers. What? The I mean, Holocaust it's centers? Like you, you can't laugh. Because then you're laughing at the Holocaust, and that's wrong. And also, just I'm making it to yourself. Do not name this pod "Gas Chambers" and all. I, I mean, I'm laughing squarely at Sean Spicer for like yes. he. You could just you could see the train wreck, you know. And he's like, he's just leaning into it. You know, he just can't stop himself. There's when he gets the follow up question from Cecilia Vega from ABC. Yeah, uh, you can see he knows he's fucked up. Like that, there is legit panic in his eyes, mm-hmm. and he doesn't know what to do. And now he doesn't. 
it's like when he he just doesn't know how to get himself out of it and it, there's also like at least up until later that day there's this mantra in the Trump world that you never apologize for anything so he can't admit he would just say like I misspoke so he has to quasi justify what he said but now he knows he's in dangerous territory and I think he doesn't know it what the quote-unquote appropriate word is. So he just, like, vomits out the term Holocaust Center. And, like, that. I, mean, I think that's also why he called them Ashad Asad, uh, <laughs> which is a great name. Um, and, I mean, it's just... Look, I do not think that proved that Sean Spicer is anti-Semitic, but... He's anti-smart, I think is what it means. He's anti-smart, I think. But there were two larger problems with what he said um besides the obvious right um number one if assad is worse than hitler um why did the president f- fire a few missiles at an airfield and then call it a day you know the the, the the policy of the trump administration is to pretty much leave assad in power so that seems like a, a fraught comparison number two the reason he did this crazy assad hitler comparison is because it was floating around on right-wing conspiracy sites the day before. So it was on Newsmax, maybe the InfoWars people said something. I don't know, all those wackos were talking about it, which means that the White House press secretary is getting all his news from these places. Like, that to me is a pretty big problem. I don't, I don't know why you would think that would be a problem, but <laughs> the, um, do you feel bad for Sean? No. <laughs> I mean... I don't feel because if you take if you take the whole like Sean Spicer's decision to work for Donald Trump to support Donald Trump to allow this to happen that is happening to our country like anyone who voluntarily participates in this I don't really feel that bad for I think you sort of made your bed um you know if you isolated all the things that Sean Spicer has done before that moment yes as another human being who is just sitting there trapped like an animal and unable to get out of this awful situation that he's in. Yeah, I guess I could say I feel bad for that. Um, I did want to, I mean, I was tweeting like, stop, stop, please stop talking, run away. Yeah, I mean, he did, like, I I do not take this as, to your point, that is evidence of that some sort of anti-Semitism on Sean Spicer's part. I have no reason to believe he's anti-Semitic. I don't know him well enough to know that. This seems just like a massive gaffe that is dramatically exacerbated by the strangely anti-Semitic things that have happened around the Trump campaign, in the Trump white house. Right. Like this and is that, treated those things are true. Yeah. If Steve Bannon doesn't work there, if they hadn't decided to put out a Holocaust uh, memorial statement without mentioning the Jews, because the Holocaust affected lots of people, you know, absent that, like there's a context for this within the Trump administration that makes that exacerbates Sean's giant fuck up, um, but he's still fucked up. And so in the sense that he, I do not feel sorry for him in, in the sense that he has made a decision to work for Trump and he, and be part of this completely fucked up administration where he, which he knew, like he made this Faustian bargain that he's going to get famous and probably get to co-host the five in a few years. Um, right. He's White House press secretary. But so... <laughs> But I do feel sorry for him in the sense that large swaths of the world think he is an anti-Semite because he said this. And that 
Right. Look, and, and that, he, that's unfor- that's unfortunate. And he apologized. So. He apologized. Yeah, good, good for him. Good for him for apologizing. Like you know, Washington loves a good apology. You know, all the he's going to get invited to all the cocktail parties after he gets fired as press secretary. Everyone's going to love Sean again because he's you know he's he's showing his remorse. So that's great. But pretty bad, pretty bad week for Sean Spicer. Uh, another person. There who is been, no such thing as a good week for Sean Spicer. No such thing. <laughs> every week, every week gets worse. No such thing as a good week. Another person who had a bad week is Bill O'Reilly, who, after losing most of his advertisers, announced he's taking a two-week vacation. I'm sure it was long planned and completely voluntary. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't <laughs> maybe, even know what to say about Bill maybe, maybe if Sean Spicer gets fired, he can just host the O'Reilly Factor. Well, it looks like his predecessor, Dana Perino, is filling in for... Uh, Bill O'Reilly, so I don't yeah. know, that's a step in the right direction. Of wonderful sort, things happen. Wonderful things happening there. Uh, couldn't happen to yeah. a worse person, Bill O'Reilly. Um, okay, yeah, really, 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 really bad. He's he is what I, Hillary Clinton would call deplorable, <laughs> and maybe irredeemable. Um, <laughs> two other people not having great weeks: Carter Page and Paul Manafort. Um, oh, I want to Carter Page, man. This guy is a t- true idiot. <laughs> So, Washington Post reports, the Justice Department obtained a wiretap for the Trump campaign advisor Carter Page based on evidence that he was operating as a Russian agent. To get such a wiretap, you need probable cause for a court to approve. We also found out that the FBI has basically been tracking him for years. Uh, A Russian spy first tried to recruit Carter Page in 2013. Man. That guy. The FBI, <laughs> the FBI secretly recorded Russian spies talking about Mr. Page as an, quote, enthusiastic idiot. <laughs> you, I, you, many, many people are saying that you're a communications uh, pro. <laughs> would, would you, if you or one of your, one of your clients had just been caught on a FISA wiretap for uh, espionage, would your first move to be do an interview with George Stephanopoulos on GMA, I'd unprepared? Book, I'd book him on all the morning shows. I'd, yeah, that's... Uh, I'd say, look, in a situation like this, what you want to do is you want to go out and just speak as much as possible. No talking points, just whatever comes to mind. I would just say whatever. I mean, you're in the middle of an ongoing investigation, so certainly give some interviews. Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah, no, he told... Uh, <laughs> Stephanopoulos asked him if um, you know he's ever discussed easing sanctions on Russia with Russians while he was part of the Trump campaign. And um, his very well thought out response was, quote, let's see what the FISA transcripts say. (laughs) Referring to the transcripts of the secret surveillance that he was under. I just... It makes me the fact that the Russian asset might be this doofus really undermines the view of Vladimir Putin, nefarious, world-dominating puppet master who is, uh, you know, just pulling the strings to to advance Russia. If the the guy they have helping him is this doofus. Well, look, I mean, it goes to the theme of the entire Trump administration and Trump campaign, which is, you know, incompetence more than malevolence, right? Like, it's just a bunch of, you know, I think Mike Morell said this, the former CIA director, way back when. It's not like Trump, uh, you know, was secretly plotting with Vladimir Putin, but Vladimir Putin saw Trump as a useful idiot. And I sort of think, like, 
I don't know. My guess is if there are revelations about collusion, it is sort of more caught up in Trump people thought they were making money from Russia because they love money and they were idiots and they sort of got caught up with these spies and they're being used by this. But I don't know. Like, I sort of think it's more um, it's like a it's a bunch of a comedy of errors that, of course, led to horrible interference in our election and Donald Trump being president. So not so funny. But I think I think the story is going to be more idiots like Carter Page sort of getting caught up in this, you know. I think useful idiots, the rapid rise and even more rapid demise of Trumpism is, is going to be a great title for the Doris Kearns Goodwin book about this period <laughs> in our history. Agreed. Agreed. Um, not to be outdone, Paul Manafort wanted to get in on the action this week, too. Um, we learned a couple things about Manafort. Uh, he received millions from a pro-Russian Ukrainian political party off a secret ledger. This, of course, had been reported during the campaign, but more evidence came out that he was actually that his company was actually paid this money. So we know that um, he now decided to register as a foreign agent. Thanks, good. He, he forgot <laughs> earlier. Um, and then probably the craziest thing. On the day after he stepped down from the Trump campaign, Paul Manafort formed a shell corporation and took out loans worth $13 million from businesses that were all connected to the Trump to, to Donald Trump, which is a, a crazy coincidence. I don't under I read this story seven times in preparation for this pod. Um, Same. And I, I, I couldn't not figure it out. Understand. I don't understand any of it. I mean, I understand the <laughs> sentence you just said, so I'm not Sean Spicer, but I don't. Like, why did these people lend me the money? Is it hush money for something? Is it just he why made these he... relationships and they want to invest in him? I, I just don't. I don't. Why understand did he need the money? It means he's like a he's like a, a rich, beyond rich consultant. You know, he's made plenty of money from dictators all over the world. Why did he need 13 million dollars in loans? What is he doing? I just, I just don't know. None of it's good. Like, let's be very clear. This seems bad. I don't know why it's bad, but it seems bad. There were, uh, I think Joy Reid reported yesterday that there was another source that said there was a second person who was uh, wiretapped uh, connected to the Trump campaign, much like Carter Page. Has to be Manafort, I think. I mean, if there's someone in this whole thing that's probably going to jail, it seems like Paul Manafort is, he's got to be up there, you know? Yeah, he's he seems like someone who has probably done some stuff that's wrong before, <laughs> during, and after his time with Trump. Yeah. The other interesting thing I noticed in some of these stories is um, the Department of Justice basically said, or sources within the Department of Justice said, that during the campaign, they wanted to make sure they didn't get any FISA warrants to uh, f- for surveillance on anyone that was with the Trump campaign. So they waited until Carter Page left the campaign to start the surveillance on him because they were worried that if they started surveillance on anyone as part of the Trump campaign, that would look political and they didn't want to cross that line. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting, too. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, and also... so. Carter Page, Paul Manafort, you know who didn't do anything wrong that we found out this week? Susan Rice. What? I thought I read on the front page of the New York Times that she had been accused of a crime by the most powerful man in the world, not named Vladimir Putin. CNN story. Uh, quote, after review of the same intelligence reports brought to light by House Intelligence Com- Chairman Devin Nunes, both Republican, Republican and Democratic lawmakers 
have so far found no evidence that Obama administration officials did anything unusual or illegal. Multiple sources in both parties tell CNN. Fuck you, Wall Street Journal editorial board. Fuck you, National Review, Weekly Standard, The Federalist, Fox News. All the rest of these people that for an entire week dragged Susan Rice through the mud, accused her of all kinds of shit, crime, wrongdoing, called her a liar. I can't, man. I just... <laughs> it is, I mean, it is a truism of the world that... When someone is accused of wrongdoing, it's on the front page of the paper. And when they're exonerated from said wrongdoing, it's on like page D12 behind the Sears uh, coupons. You knew it was coming, too. Like When all this stuff was happening with Susan, I'm like, I know that like two weeks from now, there's going to be a story buried somewhere in the back of a newspaper about how this whole thing was bullshit because Devin Nunes was lying and the Trump administration was lying. And, and you know, everyone just took it as face value, took it in face value. I made this point about, you know, A1 versus D12 in, on Twitter yesterday, and I got some aggressive responses from some members of the uh, lamestream media. And <laughs> I don't think it is not wrong that the New York Times put on the front page that Donald Trump accused Susan Rice of a crime. I don't know yeah. what, and they did, even though the first headline they put out was wrong, the, what they fixed it quickly say without evidence accused, like if the president of the United States accuses someone of a crime, it is news. Like that is, that's the lesson here is not that people shouldn't write it. It's that the president of the United States should not accuse people of crimes. Right. Without evidence, full stop. But, but it's for, to me, it's not, look, I, I said that my beef with the New York Times thing was, and this was a very small thing, like, I, was, I wasn't sure why Glenn actually used the word crime in the interview to bait Trump instead of just wrongdoing or did she do something unethical or whatever. But, you know, that's a, that's a, a small thing, really. Like, you're right. The president accused him of crime. You put that in the paper. That's a big deal. Um, my bigger problem is with the conservative media and especially the conservative establishment media because, you know, we all – Infowars, Breitbart, all the real crazies, they go on one side. But all these, like, supposed conservative intellectuals or conservative pundits, and a lot of them are never Trumpers, too, like, those people went all fucking in on attacking Susan Rice the other week. And it is really gross. And the Wall Street oh, Journal yes. editorial board, especially like the Wall Street Journal had reporting at the time that was contradict that was saying she did nothing wrong. It was not unusual what she did, blah, blah, blah. And then their editorial board was contradicting their own reporting in their newspaper and just saying that, like, she would have had no reason to do any unmasking. It's it's really pathetic. I, I agree. The Wall Street Journal editorial board is terrible. <laughs> Just, I've always thought that. I still think that. I will always think that. It's just that all, and they're all so smarmy too. Like all the people at the Federalist and all this. It's just, it's gross. Um. Anyway, yeah. enough of that. Um. The the biggest loser, the biggest loser in in the game of cucks this week is Steve Bannon. Do you Can feel I, bad? Do you feel bad for no, Steve Bannon, Dan? Let me let me read you. Yes, uh, please. Let me read you the lead of today's Washington Post. When Stephen K. Bannon reported for work Wednesday, he did, not, he did not act like a man who had just been publicly humiliated by his boss. The White House chief, of staff, chief strategist cycled in and out of the Oval Office for meetings with President Trump and took a seat in the front row of the East Room in the afternoon, for the afternoon visit of NATO Secretary General, flanked by some of the very same advisors with whom, with whom he had been feuding. It doesn't <laughs> seem great no, for that's- Stephen K. Bannon. I thought you were going to read the part of that story that said um, 
first of all, again, Washington Post, we talked to Ashley Parker about this uh, earlier in the week. 21 sources in this story. Just they, yes. They're like trying to outdo themselves with each new story. Um, including one Bannon friend who likened Bannon to a terminally ill family member who had been moved into hospice care. That's quite a friend. <laughs> yes. What a great friend. What that reminds me of how, of how people how people in the um, in the Clinton campaign are always described as friends of the friends of the Clintons, and then they always have like the nastiest quotes about the Clintons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, twenty one sources. We are living in a time. Uh, it's like a leak bubble that that will burst one day. Like, what do you think will happen when a normal person becomes president? Hopefully, in three and a half years, and reporters start calling around, and they can only get two sources for their story. I mean, yeah. Well, this is what happens when, like, none of these people are loyal to Donald Trump. No one's been loyal to Donald Trump through most of his life. So it's not super surprising, you know. Um, The other crazy thing in that Washington Post story is uh, the, well, this was sourced to a well-connected Republican operative. Quote, the fundamental assessment is that if they want to win the White House in 2020, the Trumps are not going to do it the way they did in 2016 because the family brand would not sustain the collateral damage. It would be so protectionist, nationalist, and backward-looking that they'd only be able to build in Oklahoma City or the Ozarks. Man, that's got to play well with the base, huh? <laughs> yes. These... Do, you wa- do you watch Scandal? I do watch Scandal. So, you know the Donald Trump character that they had this past season? Yeah. I forget his name. Where he gets caught in the in the end in like classic scandal fashion. Right. Olivia Pope gets him to to tapes secretly tapes him talking about how he was just pretending to be uh, a racist dick so that you know the people in the Ozarks and Oklahoma City would like him. Right, right, this right. This feels similar to that except Donald Trump's not pretending. Just his <laughs> his globalist cuck children are. <laughs> I just, I mean, I can see that as true too. Like, look, this whole, I mean, we'll talk about this. This whole, the, the Jared and Ivanka and, you know, globalist Gary um, Cone wing here. Like, these are, these are like New York Manhattanites, right? They're, they're socialites. They, they want to be on Morning Joe and invited to Davos and go to Aspen and, you know, like, they are the they are they like being establishment, you know. They want to be part of the establishment, um, and so they are going to try to protect the brand that way. That to them is going to be more important than whatever sort of you know uh, revolutionary plan Steve Bannon has to like tear down the administrative state and you know have a worldwide revolution of populists. Like they don't give a shit about that. All these stories are say that like getting rid of Bannon would hurt Trump with his populist nationalist base. Mm. Do we think, I mean, it may hurt him with Breitbart and known populist and uh, gazillionaire Rebecca Mercer, but what? I do. It's, I find it hard to imagine the people wearing the MAGA hats uh, who showed up at those rallies well, look, know I, or care who Steve Bannon is. So I think, again, we, we focus... Uh, Everyone focuses too much on on uh, personalities and not policy, um, which yeah. you know. Well, that, that, as, that certainly didn't hurt us personally. As, right, so. as we say, as we're as we're going through <laughs> our list of people that have had good weeks and bad weeks. Um, 
But look, I don't, so I don't think it's it's Bannon that's going to get these people worried. Um, and look, there's some people in the MAGA hats who, like, you know, as Trump said, he could go shoot one of his supporters and they'd still be with him. Um, Bill Mitchell would be one of those people. Um, <laughs> but look, I think him him deciding to move to the center on economic policy and have his economic policy run by a dude from Goldman Sachs and then sort of moderate his views on a lot of these other things like i think his the republican party now has a working class base they it's more than they ever have uh in in the history of the party for a long time now and trump flip-flopping on a lot of these positions and moving to the center economically and it's not really center i should say it's more like it's establishment you know um it's it's goldman sachs running the white house policy it's uh, and I, I think that could really hurt him. I actually think, I mean, I'm happy about this move, this move to the center. Um, A, because, you know, the scariest parts of Steve Bannon we might not have to deal with. But B, because it, I think it is going to hurt him politically, right? Like, they are now trying, just as he was trying to get the applause of the people at those MAGA rallies, now he's trying to get the applause of the Washington establishment. And the Washington establishment, they really aren't good at politics, <laughs> they don't have a great track record. So like what? Yeah, I know. So like great, they're going to start talking about him in a in a positive way on Morning Joe and like, you know, Goldman Sachs people are going to like him. Like I don't think that's really going to help him politically that much. I think that's right. Um I don't like you said this and we should it's he's not moving to the center. Right. Like there there are like in policy there is left and there's right. And then there are some like general governing tenants that are kind of the same, almost re- regardless of who is in the White House, right? And China is one of those. Supporting NATO is one of those. It's not really a Democratic or Republican position or conservative or liberal. It's kind of just what it's like the reality of governing, right? You And he's right. reverting to some sort of normal mean on some set of issues that he probably couldn't have really broken from anyway. Like we were not getting out of NATO. Like that's not a thing that was going to happen. We were not going to put up a bunch of tariffs on China because all of those CEOs who Trump meets with every day would have flipped the fuck out and for good reason. Right. Right. And so like, there's not like the every, because this has to be this, you know, game of cucks, uh, narrative about who's up, who's down is, but let's not forget there's like a bunch of other horrible shit happening that, that globalist Gary Cohn and Javanka would be embarrassed to have to tell people at their Manhattan parties. Like there's a story in the post about the deportation force that Jeff Sessions is uh, forming I mean, as we speak. Yeah. Someone said this this morning, tweeted this morning, but um, I think Paul Waldman did like for all the talk about Bannon the the most poisonous force in this White House right now is Jeff Sessions. Like, by I mean, there's the deportation force. Um, is part of the he set put out a memo the other day where he threatened to prosecute anyone who harbors undocumented immigrants, um, bringing back the war on drugs, cracking down on minor offenses. Made it clear that he's not going to do anything about police abuse. Uh, basically, throw away the report that the Obama administration did on you know systemic abuse in police departments. Uh, disbanding a forensic science commission that was I'm there. So to glad maybe, you brought that up. Oh, that is the craziest thing. 
unfucking believable. There's a commission of scientists to make sure that when you when you accuse someone or when you try someone for a crime that the evidence is all scientific and that you could that some you know there aren't any wrongful convictions based on faulty science. Why would you disband that? Yeah. Like the other things I find abhorrent and terrible and pretty dickish. <laughs> but they are, there is a position, right? The mm-hmm. you can be against Criminal justice, some of the criminal justice reform thing, bipartisan justice reforms that Obama, that we worked on in the in the White House. You can think wrongly, but that the best way to deal with crime is throw everyone in jail for something. So that's what that is position. It is not a position to be for shoddy forensic techniques that put people, innocent people, in jail. Like that's not a position. That is just <laughs> I'm gonna it's walk. Or, I'm just position. gonna be a dick. Like it's insane. Jeff Sessions is just bad. He's bad. Yeah. Um, you know who else is bad? Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is. Like, well, he's not just some vessel for either Steve Bannon or or Jared and Gary Cohn and Dina Powell. He is a bad person who was unqualified for the job doing bad things and using a Twitter account to threaten war with North Korea, which seems concerning. Yeah. His his sort of like diplomacy via Twitter and now his new he's replaced sad exclamation point with just USA at the end of all these tweets. Um, I don't I don't know what that's all about, but interesting. Um, <laughs> so funny. No, I mean look on 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 domestic policy, you have like Trump campaigned as this uh, populist protectionist economically, right? And he's moving on that to a more uh, traditional Republican conservative stances, right? So the Export-Import Bank, which provides financing to companies that export overseas, was a favorite boogeyman of the Tea Party for years. They said it just helps big corporations. Um, Trump yesterday said he liked it because he found out it helps small businesses too. He's now for the Export-Import Bank, Um during the campaign, he said he'd labeled China a currency manipulator because, quote, they are the greatest currency manipulators ever. Um, this was always crazy because they hadn't devalued their currency for years. Everyone knew that. Um, he was just lying at the time. And so now he finally realizes that, that they are not, in fact, currency manipulators. But again, this was a more protectionist position that he took, and now he's abandoned it. Um, Janet Yellen said she was awful as Fed chairman. Now he respects her. Now he might keep her. Um, so on all this economic stuff, he's going from campaigning as a populist, which is you could argue one reason that um, he won, and and now he's listening to globalist Gary. Um, and on foreign policy, we're seeing that he campaigned as an isolationist, America first. Uh, said NATO was obsolete yesterday. He said NATO is no longer obsolete. And then the whole Syria thing. You know, like he he how many times did he criticize Obama? Say Obama should not attack Syria, should not get involved, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he launched his he launched his missiles. By the way, can we talk about that Maria Bartiromo interview? Oh, the chocolate cake. (laughs) (laughs) The delicious chocolate cake that he was eating while telling the Chinese president that he launched Tomahawk missiles at Iraq is what he said instead of Syria. That is the best part about that interview is that he had detailed, vivid recollection of the cake, but he was iffy on which country he lost the he launched the missiles at. I mean, 
and it was like the the glee with which he described launching the missiles too was just very unsettling, very unsettling. Yeah. Um, and Maria Bartiromo, by the way, just like laughing and smiling, and it just, that was talk about talk about softball interviews, Jesus. I mean, she she was auditioning for either another interview or Sean Spicer's job. Yeah, well, she could get it. Um, so the the last really awful thing that he's been doing lately that um, really is more of a, it, I don't want to say like traditional conservative position, but certainly like the Paul Ryan position on health care. Um, he's still, he keeps saying to people he's he's going to do health care reform, even though it, it continues to die. Uh, he keeps trying to bring it back. So here's his latest. Part of the Affordable Care Act includes a subsidy program that helps insurers pay medical bills for low-income customers. Without these payments, without insur- giving the insurers these payments, uh, a lot of these insurance companies would pull out of the market. And that would leave millions and millions of people without any options for an insurance company. Uh, it would raise costs for just about everyone. Costs would go up. It would it basically help melt down the insurance market. Uh, of course, during the Obama administration, Republicans sued and said that the administration didn't have the authority to make these payments. Um, that lawsuit remains in limbo right now. So on Monday, Trump's Department of Health and Human Services said, you know what? I think we'll probably keep the payments going because we realize it might melt down the markets. Trump finds this out, gets ridiculously pissed, makes them retract the statement, and then said he's using the payments as leverage. He said, quote, I don't, he said to the Wall Street Journal, I don't want people to get hurt. What I think should happen is that Democrats will start calling me and negotiating. So basically Trump's position is, um, you know, if you don't, I, I, if you don't come to the table and help me take away health care for 24 million people, I will take away health care for 24 million people. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't understand what this is. Yeah, it, I mean, it's evil. It's, it's horrible. Just, I don't want people to get a, hurt. You sound like a fucking, like you're holding someone hostage. That's what people who hold people hostage say. And, but it's also dumb. Because <laughs> why would Democrats... Try- I mean, like, right. what incentive would Democrats possibly have to come to the table there? Yeah, come to the table. Yeah, come to the table to help me uh, help me kick people off their health care. Yes, I'm. It's basically like I am going to light myself on fire politically by single handedly kicking people off insurance. If they had passed ACHA, if you will, mm-hmm. over t- like it would have been horrible, but it would have happened incrementally over the next months and years where as the as a, as they implemented it here with one fell swoop they could do it right there with their name on it it like there's no democrats should have no political fear over this and republicans in congress would theoretically freak the fuck out about it theoretically yeah i mean look kaiser poll recently 75% uh, of Americans want Trump to make the law work, and 61% said Trump and the Republicans are responsible for any problems with the Affordable Care Act going forward, versus 31% who said they'd blame Obama. Um, so obviously some people are going to say, well, Trump's crazy base, he's just going to make them believe that it is the Democrats' fault. Yes, of course, there are going to be some people who that's going to work on. It is going to be a very small minority of people. Most people understand that the President of the United States, you know, 
and, and his party controls both houses of Congress, that if the insurance markets melt down because they didn't take a step they could easily take, then yeah, that's uh, that maybe is their fault. Yeah, it's, this is not good. But it's like bad. This. I mean, I think it, it tells what it tells everyone is to keep the pressure up uh, during congressional recess this week. And we know we've already seen this at some of these town halls is people yelling at their representatives, particularly, obviously, their Republican representatives to, um, you know, to not back Trump care or Ryan care or wealth care or whatever the fuck it may be now. You're going to keep going with that wealth care thing to the very end. You know, I just I threw it in because you never know. Yeah, you're um, a modern. You're a modern day George Lakoff. Until it's dead, when it's dead, completely, it's Trump care. When it's still alive, it's wealth care. That's that's how Got I'm it. going. And one more thing uh, before we get to uh, our guests today, we should talk about the the race in Kansas. Democrat James Thompson uh, lost by six and a half percentage points after Trump won the district by what twenty something points? Yeah, twenty something, twenty seven points, I think. Yeah. So here's the thing on this. Like, I was pretty, I thought that's pretty good news that we came that close. We were never supposed to win that seat. It shows that, you know, if you, if, if, if a Democrat can come that close in the reddest, reddest district, one of the reddest districts in the country, then, you know, that means that people are pretty amped on our side of the aisle and are, um, are ready to fight. And it doesn't really necessarily predict what might happen going forward, but it should tell us, yeah, it's time to fight. Now, there's a bunch of folks on Twitter who were just, you know, like, well, this shouldn't excite us. We still lost. And it's all the DCCC's fault and the DNC's fault for not paying attention to this race. And if they had thrown more money in, then uh, Thompson would have won. Now, look, my reaction is like, yeah, I don't know why the DTRIP uh, ignored this race. Um, I don't like... Of course they should have, you know, but like, I do not think, of course they should have helped out, but I don't think that we should all, this this notion that we should all hang our hopes on the D-trip, the DCCC and the DNC to fix everything, just, it, it's crazy to me, you know, like, if, if you're annoyed by them, if you think they're too establishment, if you think they're ineffective, there's a million different ways to go around them and help these candidates win, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the... It was such a emotional roller coaster on Tuesday night, which feels like when you and I were planning this pod, I had forgotten that Kansas happened because so much news happened basically on Wednesday. The uh, but at first it's you know I had very low expectations for this. Maybe we come close. And then you're on Twitter, and you know Nate Cohn is saying how you know how good the early vote is for uh, the Democrat, and you're feeling good, and then. Much like other recent elections in memory, it doesn't it doesn't end great. But then people are like, well, this is a great sign for Democrats because this means they're fired up and there's been a shift against Republicans. And then Democrats start shitting on each other. <laughs> and it feels like the day after the election, like we can't be sad. Like it'd be better if we won. Winning is better than losing. Truth is, you'd hold this seat. This happens in special elections. Sometimes you hold the seat temporarily. It's it'd be much harder to win this in a non-special election environment yeah. in November. So, but the winning would be good. The winning would have a, re, you know, probably a real impact on how Republicans thought about passing things like quote wealth care. Um, if they can't even hold Kansas, there are a hundred Republican districts that are less Democratic than this one. So if you if 
the Democrat, if this were to hold through November, this sort of shift towards Democrats, Democrats would take the House by a massive margin. Um, yeah. I'm sort of torn. You know, I sort of followed the debate around the DCCC, whether they should have invested or not. And some people were arguing, people, you know, smart people who've worked the DCCC in other places, but don't work there now. So they, I don't think they were speaking on behalf of the DCCC. Mm-hmm. But we're saying that in these in a special election, a place like Kansas, it's a mistake to nationalize by having the Democratic Party come in. Uh, I'm not sure I buy that argument. And I mean, the guy had a D by his name. He's sort of, uh, you know, it's not you can. I don't know that you're going to sneak past people. He's a Democrat. Um, and then the other argument was money is limited. So if they're going to spend a million dollars here in Kansas in what is a very long shot endeavor, there's going to be some race like in a more winnable district somewhere down the line that they don't spend that money. Yeah. And there, there's some logic to that. And I've made that I'm, you know, in the course of defending things that the Obama political operation and I've made that argument that you have to be strategic in your deployment of resources. I'm not sure in this case that money is actually that limited for Democrats in the Trump environment. I mean, if John Ossoff can raise $8 million right. for a special election in Georgia, it feels like we should test the proposition that we can't raise enough money to do all the things we want to do. I agree with that, too. I also think someone suggested, like, why doesn't the DCCC put a poll in the field in every district, especially in a special election, just to see if you know, it's it's closer than you'd imagine from the last race. I think that's a completely fair argument, and they should do that. I also think you're right. Like, money is... If, if you, can, you can make a race a big deal nationally these days easier than you ever could, right? And Ossoff's a great example of that. $8 million going into that race. So, yeah, I think there's a good argument that DCCC should have done more, for sure. But I just think letting your annoyance with the DCCC and the DNC you know, make you decide that, oh, I don't want to pay attention and this isn't worth it and Democrats are awful and blah, blah, blah. It's like, if you if you, if you want to give money to the race, give money to James Thompson directly. Forget about the DCCC. Yeah. You know, like we can, and there's all, like, we're going to talk to Ezra from Indivisible, there's Swing Left, there's all these grassroots organizations that are providing money, support, volunteers, resources to candidates all around the country. Like, let's use them, you know, if the DCCC isn't stepping up. It's it's fine. These these organizations are not the be all and end all. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, they play an important role, and of course they do. And they should they you know support. do a better there job. There are other ways that you can support directly. Just because the DCCC doesn't get involved doesn't mean you can't get involved. Right. These are not all powerful committees here. Um, but I agree that you know they should maybe next time if there's a race like this, the DCCC would get involved earlier. I think that would be. Well, we a, have that. We have a, Mo- a Montana race coming up in addition to Georgia yeah. on Tuesday. That's right. That's right. We got a and the Montana race I think is late May. We're going to we'll yeah. talk more about that in future episodes here. Okay, when we return, we will have Obama pollster Cornell Belcher. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. On today's pod, we have Obama pollster and author of the new book, A Black Man in the White House, Cornell Belcher. Cornell, how are you? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on your show, guys. Actually, that's not true. I'm, I'm depressed. Like most of Washington, <laughs> both Democrats and Republicans, we're all depressed. We're all but... depressed. Dark days. <laughs> Tell us about the book. You know, uh, and thanks for bringing it up. I started working on the book actually in 2008, you know, when we were working on the on the Obama campaign I and mean, it was part of that fantastic polling team there. You know, we didn't talk a lot about race in 2008, but we did look into how uh, racial attitudes would in fact impact the 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 vote and 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 our electoral our electoral chances. And you know, so I started doing polling actually on my own around indexing racial attitudes and and team, I, I thought, frankly, over the course of Obama's um, presidency, we would see a lessening in, in racial aversion. Uh, but frankly, and I kept it going from 2008 right up into um, the, the, the the primaries that just passed. And I was really hoping to see a lessening of, of racial attitudes. You'll remember there was a lot of conversation about a post-racial America after right. the 2008 <laughs> election. But the truth of the matter is, you know, there was a rallying point where Americans were proud, but then we saw a bifurcation um, and a hardening of racial attitudes, and we saw a rise of a group of people who felt as though they were losing their country. And we heard the cries of, take back our country, uh, was born out of uh, at that time. Do you think that Trump sort of contributed to the racial polarization more than Obama, less than Obama's presence on the ticket. Uh, what What are your thoughts on that? Well, no, but I, 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 and I talk about this in the book. Look, you know, the Obama coalition, and you got, and you cats know this, right? The Obama coalition was unique, you know. Uh, but a, Obama coalition took um, advantage of, and, or we as a campaign took advantage of the changing demographics in this country. I mean, a lot of people. Um, argue that demographics aren't necessarily destiny. Demographics are destiny, particularly if we make them so, right? One of the first conversations that we had with then-Senator Obama around a small table, we had a conversation, well, 
And it was, you know, Senator Obama who talked about building a movement, right? And we were going to build a movement to bring more people into the process and make the electorate look that more like the the, the emerging uh, American electorate, which, which, of course, is increasingly diverse. And if you look at millennials in, in particular, you know, the most diverse generation of Americans ever in our history, and about 11% of our vote in 2008 were people new to the process, and, and, and about 60% of those were those voters these millennial voters, these, 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 young, these younger voters, right? So for the first time ever in American history, someone could lose the vast majority of, of the white vote while winning, right? And it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily a, when you look at the numbers, it wasn't like Barack Obama made a huge racial breakthrough uh, that was different from, from, Dem- from what Democrats had done before. You know, Barack Obama won while garnering 43% of the, of the white vote, while John Kerry lost garnering 43% of the white vote. And in 2012, you know, we got, what, 39% of the white vote. So for the first time ever, because of demographic changes, you know, we could win back-to-back majorities with the vast majority of white voters breaking the, uh, breaking, breaking the other way. And that was, I argue in the book, a real challenge to uh, white political supremacy in the country in a way that it had never been before. So the, so the wolf was at the door with the, Ob- with the Obama coalition, and you saw a backlash to that. Cornell and Stan, how do you um, think about the rural white voters who voted for Barack Obama in 2008, 2012, but then switched to Trump in 2016? You know, and, and thanks for that. But I, I think, I think we're, we spend too much time on, on that conversation, right? And, you know, were there Obama-Trump uh, voters? Absolutely. Uh, but were there also Romney um, Hillary voters, you know, absolutely. Did uh, did did Trump uh, run up the score among blue collar whites more so than, than 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 Romney did? Absolutely, he he did. But 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 also look at the other side of that is, you know, uh, Trump didn't do as well with younger, better educated whites as Mitt Romney did. And in the end, it's it's almost in the aggregate, it's almost a wash. I mean, let me pick this for example. You know, Trump. Uh, you know, what did Mitt Romney get in Florida, right? He got 49% in losing. Trump got 49% in winning. And if you go, if you, go you know, go to Pennsylvania and you go to Wisconsin and you look at what Trump did, his coalition doesn't look that much remarkably unlike, from a, from a percentage point, from what Romney did, right? But it wasn't, to me, about what Trump did. It was about what we Democrats failed to do, and we left a lot of voters on the table. You know, you'll remember there's a lot of articles going into the election talking about younger voters being disenchanted, right, and this protest vote. And they were rejecting the binary choice of the lesser of two evils that we that we were that we were trying to force them to make. And when you look at eight or nine percent of millennials breaking third party, it's a re- it's a real problem, right? And when you look at, you know, eight seven percent of, you know, African Americans under you know, under thirty breaking third party, it, you know, that's where the Obama coalition um, dissipated, right? It, it, to me, we're spending an awful lot of time talking about how do we gather more of Trump's vote, which is a, a less than a majority, less than a plurality vote, right, as opposed to talking about how do we, in fact, garner and bring back together the majority of voters who are out there, you know, this expanding, we have, we have an expanding you know, electorate that is growing younger, 
and browner and and more in line with 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 us on the issues, right? And then we have a shrinking, increasingly older, more resistant electorate that ha- that is not that's not with us, right? So from a market standpoint, if I was just running a business, you know, where would I spend a lot of my time and effort? I would spend my, most of my time and effort at the expanding, less resistant marketplace as opposed to the shrinking, more resistant marketplace. Should we do better with blue-collar white voters? Absolutely, absolutely we should. But we better also try to cobble together back these younger voters who are, who are not identifying strongly with either party but did vote for Barack Obama. Cornell, where do you think the failure was in 2016 with the like why why was the Clinton campaign unable to turn out the quote unquote Obama coalition at the at, at a necessary level to win? Look, you know we've been all part of campaigns, and I, you know, and Lord knows we did a lot of things on the Obama campaign that we took plenty of incoming for, and people call us idiots about. So I, I, I'm not going to beat up on on the Clinton campaign because I think you know for the most part they did an excellent job but but again they were also sat up with a candidate who had incredibly high negatives right um and then you did have young people who thought that that regardless she was you were asking them to vote for lesser to evil but i do think and this is not just about hillary campaign i think for democrats more broadly look um we have to spend more time and resources uh, particularly with 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 young with with, young, with younger voters, and we have to turn over and upset the apple cart on how our so many of we run these campaigns where we spend what sixty seventy percent of our resources on television, and if, and and Trump was absolutely right when he said after the election he was more effective in social media than the Clinton campaign was with all their millions and millions of dollars of of, of advertising, and and there is some studies out there. That, that actually point to that being being true. I think that there was also a miscalculation in that, you know, go six seven months out from from the campaign from 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 election day. I think a lot of Democrats argue that well, she doesn't have to hold the Obama coalition as tightly because certainly she's going to do better among white women, right? Certainly, Cornell, she's going to do better among white women. Well, she didn't really do better among white women because yeah. the electorate was so racially polarized. So she actually had to hold that coalition, uh, you know, you know, tighter. But it's also a problem for Democrats because look, these younger voters, that, and this is the argument I've been making, they were Obama voters, not necessarily Democratic voters. We've got to work hard to bring them in and in, in line and keep them energized. So I want to go back to a second uh, for a second to this emerging demographic majority. I think certainly, if you were running a truly national campaign, you would think there are more of our voters than their voters, right? But in the states, do you think there's enough of these voters in states adding up to 270? Do you think that we are in the right geographic concentrations, like when you talk about Michigan, Ohio, some of these Midwestern states? Um, do, do you think that in those, within those states, there is enough of the emerging sort of democratic coalition for us to you know, win future elections? In the battleground states, you know, look, the, the battleground states are actually where most of the, the demographic sort of explosion is happening, and, and we're having conversations about Georgia becoming a battleground state now, right. not because you know because of demographic changes, right? Uh, but, it, but but look at but again, look at Florida. I mean, there's to me, there's no more central battleground state for better or worse than Florida, right? Mm-hmm. And Florida was actually browner, you know, this election than it was in 2012 for us, right? If Barack Obama had won had run in Florida this time around. 
you know, he would have he would have won by 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 a bigger margin. And overall, the nationally, the electorate, according to exit polls, were were about two points browner. So, you know, worse turnout down in some places, absolutely, particularly places like North Carolina, where it was, you know, they they intentionally made it harder. Right. But I I reject the idea that that the uh, that we didn't have the right electorate because if you because if you look at how younger voters made up a larger swath of the electorate than, than seniors, which is different from, from midterms, right? And if you look at this electorate being two points browner, I would argue that Barack Obama had had, had this electorate. He would have won with 52, maybe almost 53 percent of the vote. And then you look at some of these battleground states where Hillary won demographically the, the, the Obama coalition. She just didn't win them by the same margin. And it wasn't that they broke for Trump. It was that they... You know, she's off Barack Obama's margins almost exactly the percentage that went third party, right? So I think it's about cobbling together the the you know, the the coalition again in the battleground states. Now that's not House districts, right? Because we know gerrymandering is real, and that's a real problem. You have a House of Representatives that is not a representative body; it is a fixed game. But that's different. But from from a national campaign standpoint. I, I think we have to spend a lot of time trying to cobble back together this expanding, diverse, younger electorate as opposed to trying to double down on going after, you know, some some of his forty six percent who actually bought into the argument that, that he that he that he was making, right? I, I you know, I think that the path of least resistance is actually going after these younger voters who are on our side so on, on the issue standpoint, but are so disenchanted with the system and politics as usual. Interesting. So one one last question, we'll let you go. Um, you mentioned Clinton-Romney voters. There certainly seems to be a, a lot of those in the 6th Congressional District of Georgia, where there's going to be a special <laughs> election on Tuesday. Uh, John Ossoff's making a real play for it. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that race? Well, in, in full transparency, you know, I, I, my company has done some work on the IE side for that. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. I, but I, I think, look, if Democrats, well, first of all, you know, these are Republican districts, right? And they're really Republican districts. Of, you know, this, this, this should not be a swing district. That, that it is apparently this close, I think, speaks to the problem. Look, and we saw that in the special election in Kansas where, you know, it was a 20-point drop, um, off in there, so the, the Trump effect I think is real. And if Democrats are going to be able to pick up seats this time around, red seats this time around, um, I think it it does look an awful lot like these districts uh, that they're in Georgia, where you do have um, a a college edu- sort of a better educated, more affluent white voter there. Because remember, during the campaign going into the twenty November, you know a lot of people were arguing well. He's doing better among, or he's doing worse among college-educated white voters than typical Republican candidate does, right? I think in the end, you know, college-educated white, they did in fact break for him begrudgingly. But you also see in the, in the public polling right now erosion there among the better-educated, more affluent uh, white Republican white Republican voter. And if we can keep up the energy of our base, because you know this, look, the, the midterm electorate. It's very different from the general electorate. They are older, more conservative, less diverse. And that's been our problem. That's been a large part of our problem in terms of if we can keep up the energy levels, and we see this with the marches, you know, weekly, we can keep up the energy level and, you know, get some of these more affluent, uh, better educated voters, you know, to, to erode away who are, who, are, who are rejecting what they see in Trump. 
I think we have a I think we have a great shot if we have strong candidates. I think we do have a strong candidate there in Georgia. Excellent. Oh, we shall see on Tuesday. Um, Cornell, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you coming on and uh, and come back again soon. Thanks for having me. We got to catch up and, and grab a drink sometime soon and, and talk about old times. For sure, for sure. Let us know when you uh, let us know when you head to the West Coast <laughs> soon. Thanks, guys. All right, take care. Don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. And our guest today, the executive director of Indivisible, Ezra Levin. Ezra, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Long time, first time. It's great to have you. You guys are doing some great stuff out there. Well, I appreciate it. You're doing some pretty great stuff over there, too. Well, thank you. Um, Okay, so Tuesday is the uh, special election in the 6th Congressional District of Georgia. Um, What can anyone who wants to help John Ossoff, the Democratic candidate, do over the next couple days as we get into the home stretch here? Yeah, well, so, you know, one thing I would say, you can't talk about Tuesday without reflecting on what just happened in the 4th District of Kansas. That, is a that was my next question. <laughs> What's that? That was my next question for you. Great. Let's let's do them both. Okay, great. Well, I mean, so that is a Republican plus 15 district that went by only seven points uh, to, to the Republican. This is, this is a district that Mike Pompeo, who is now, unfortunately, CIA director, right. won by 32 points last year. This is an absolute disaster for Trump. It's, it's reminding every single uh, member of Congress right now that, oh yeah, there are elections next year, and oh yeah, people actually aren't in love with what Trump is doing uh, in his first 100 days, let alone what he tries to accomplish over the next few months. I think you're going to see a huge impact from that election on uh, exactly what Congress is doing in the weeks and months to come. But so for what's happening in Georgia 6, you know, we're we're really excited about Georgia 6 for a couple of reasons. One is that there is a ton of energy there, too. There are 19 indivisible groups spread across the three counties of Georgia 6, which is just 
uh, crazy. We started doing yeah. outreach there uh, a month or two ago and doing um, coordinating calls. So we've been doing weekly calls. And you hear the individual stories of these groups down there, and they, they all have their own inspiring origin story. One's a, a group of moms that formed right after the election. They came together, 20 people in their living room, and now they've got 500 people, and they're, they're basically building up an organization. They've got a diversity committee doing outreach to the Latino and faith-based communities in the district, and they, they're doing GOTV trainings, and they're doing... Uh, uh, a, a whole bunch of campaign-related stuff in addition to the advocacy work. So here's what I would say. If you want to get involved in Georgia 6, you should do what everybody else in Georgia 6 is doing, which is get together in your local group. Maybe that's an indivisible group. Maybe that's a, a different group that's organizing the area. That's fine. But find your local group and participate. Uh, this is uh, an election that's going to be determined by voters, not by money, although uh, it's nice to hear that he's got a lot of money, too. But money doesn't vote. People vote. And so uh, whether or not this is an outcome we like the look of is going to depend on whether people actually get up and go out and get the job done. Ezra, talk to us about the tax march uh, that's coming up this weekend. Yeah, so we're excited about tax march. So we are smack dab in the middle of congressional recess. And uh, we call it congressional recess. It's a colloquial term. But actually what it's called in Congress officially is the district work period, right? And it's called district work period because there are no votes or no hearings uh, in D.C., People uh, that members of Congress are expected to go back home to their home districts or home states and uh, do district work. That means listening to their uh, constituents, uh, asking about their concerns. And we saw a lot of this going on in the February congressional recess. That was the first one. You know, I'm from Texas, so I love seeing this. You saw uh, people with thick southern accents in Arkansas demanding that uh, uh, Senator Tom Cotton not vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act, not vote to take away health insurance from 24 million Americans. And we saw as a direct result of action during that congressional recess that uh, especially quasi-moderate Republicans dropped off the bill. Uh, this is uh, Republicans like Barbara Comstock or Leonard Lance or Representative Freeland Heisen. There were town halls going on during that, that congressional recess and before where people were pressuring them and they changed their behavior. So the tax march is actually really exciting for that reason now, because uh, this Saturday, April 15th, both in Washington, D.C., but also in 120-plus communities across the country, there are going to be these tax marches. And in addition to just people coming together to pressure um, uh, President Trump to release his tax returns, uh, there are going to be town hall events and public events with members of Congress. And the reason why this is exciting is because, look, I don't think Donald Trump is suddenly uh, suddenly going to find Jesus and decide, yeah, I am going to release my tax returns. It's the right thing to do. Every president since Nixon has done it. But what we do know is that Congress has the unilateral ability to get these tax returns. There's legislation that's been on the books for 90 years that gives them the ability to do this. And we know that they're responsive to their constituents because they care more about what their constituents think of them than anything that Donald Trump is trying to get done. So the, the April 15 tax march is a real opportunity for constituents across the country to say, hey, member of Congress, you've got the ability to actually get these tax returns. You need to use it. And we've already seen actually in this recess that working. There's a, there's a story out of Florida. Uh, Representative Yoho, who is not any kind of moderate Republican, he's no. a pretty conservative Republican, but uh, he talked to a, a local indivisible member, and that indivisible member changed his mind. He announced, yeah, he wants to see Donald Trump's tax returns, too. Uh, just today, actually, there was a poll released. It was a global strategy group, and Move On uh, uh, issued a poll. 
found that 80% of Americans want Donald Trump to release his tax returns, including 64% of Republicans. This is not a partisan issue. This is, it, it's not just about taxes either, is what I would say. Taxes are boring. You know, I did progressive tax uh, policy work and did long for reports. I understand that not everybody gets as jazzed up about it as I do, but this isn't just about taxes. It's, it's, it's international intrigue. It's, it deals with transparency and ethics. It's, you know, I don't know whether or not Donald Trump is engaging in a wide-scale cover-up of his business dealings and his entanglements with Russia and other foreign dictators, but we do know that if we get his tax returns, which Congress can do, we can find out. Uh, so I think that's why you see so much interest out there, and you're going to just see thousands of people across the country uh, finding these tax marches and uh, participate. And just to give a plug, you can go to IndivisibleGuide.com, type in your zip code, and find one of these tax marches, uh, or just go to TaxMarch.org and you can do the same. Is part of the message of these tax marches also going to involve sort of Trump's push for tax reform that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks? Because I think, I mean, health care reform, as we saw for Trump and the Republicans, was about cutting taxes for rich people. Tax reform is going to be about cutting taxes for rich people um, and also increasing the deficit because they don't seem like they want to pay for it. Uh, it seems like it's a, it's a pretty fruitful message uh, to go along with, you know, a lot of Trump's policy on taxes is going to benefit Trump. <laughs> um, and yeah, s- right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, and look, uh, you, you say that the that, that, that Trump care was about taxes and that, uh, that, that they're gearing up in a lot of ways to, uh, to, to cut taxes for rich people. It really seems like just about everything they're doing is ultimately what they would like to get done. What Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell would really like to do is just cut taxes for rich people. Right. That's what they, that's it's their the number deal. one goal. And so, yes, they, they were focusing on, on the Affordable Care Act because they had promised it to their base, but fundamentally what they would like to do is just allow rich people to pay a lot less. Uh, I think their plans for quote-unquote tax reform are no different. Uh, when they talk about tax reform, what they're actually talking about is they really like millionaires and billionaires to get a little bit of relief because their lives are just so darn hard right now. <laughs> they really need some support. Uh, you know, what, what we see is that there's absolutely, uh, well, I wouldn't say zero support, but there's almost zero support for that kind of quote-unquote reform. You, people do not think that millionaires and billionaires have it too hard right now. And so, yeah, I, I think one of the messages coming out of these tax marches is, look, we don't know how much Donald Trump is trying to save himself when he, when he tries to get behind some of these tax reform plans. And we certainly don't want to see uh, the uh, social safety net programs and programs that support the poor, the sick, the, the young, the old, the people that depend on public education, everybody who depends on uh, uh, the, the services that the federal government provides, uh, we don't want to see those cut at the same time as you're cutting uh, the tax, uh, the taxes for the, the uber wealthy. It makes no sense, and it's got no support. So you'll see pushback during the tax march on that, too. Ezra, thank you for coming on the pod. Uh, everyone go to IndivisibleGuide.com, um, form your own Indivisible group, find out you know where your local tax march is, and, uh, and go get involved. Thanks so much. We'll see you out there. Thanks, Ezra. Take care. That's our pod for today. We'll talk to you soon. Wait, we're not Bye, guys. Talk about Love It or Leave It? No. <laughs> no. Are you sure? <laughs> what, if I, what if right now the Love It or Leave It music is starting through the magic of podcasting? Do you think that maybe that was funny the first couple times and now it's not as funny? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we plugged it at the top of the show, Love It. And now we're doing every, it again. Every time. Who's on Love It or Leave It this week? Yeah, who is on Love It or Leave It? I didn't know oh. that. Oh, see, now there are questions. We have Rhea Butcher, Mike Schur, Zubin Parang. It's a great panel. People should subscribe. <laughs> okay. We'll talk to everyone later. <laughs> Bye.
The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.